I know it's really hot for everyone. I'd like to apologize for the heat. I know it's in the 80s out there, uh, or the high 70s anyway. I know it's really tough. <laughs> we are in the Lord's army, but it doesn't mean we have to complain uh, like soldiers do. Uh, they say if soldiers are not complaining, then they're not healthy and happy. And um, yesterday was liquid sunshine, and Lord, when... When will we stop living in Seattle? And today it's, oh, oh it's, it's got to be 75 out there. <laughs> anyway, um, it's good to be with everyone. It's great to, to see you and uh, have the privilege of fellowshipping with you. And we've made a decision, all of us together have made a really, sa- really big sacrifice. The sun is out and it's now cool and nice outside. And now you came inside and uh, we're going to spend some time doing something way more important than enjoying the, the uh, cursed environs we live in. Uh, we just sang about the second advent of Jesus Christ, and I would modify one piece of that, that um, the, the Gaithers don't see the same way I do. He's coming, uh, and I'm coming with him, so you could say he's coming with me or he's bringing me with him uh, when the Lord does come back and establish his kingdom. And then we will hang out outside all the time. No allergens, no, uh, no mosquito bites. Um, uh, it'll be amazing when the curse of the earth is removed. And uh, so, but not, not for today. In fact, tonight we're studying uh, the challenging concepts, some of the challenging concepts in Christian spirituality. And I've selected for this image, as you can see on the screen behind me, uh, a mirror image of a, of a body of water with a storm on the horizon and, uh, and a, a boat that's headed off into the adventure. And um, I love the challenge of the scriptures. I love when it's hard. And uh, tonight we're going to look at a couple of hard questions that... Um, I think most people sort of just kind of gloss over because you can't really know for sure some of the answers that the questions um, to, to some of the questions. But I do want to point them out. And um, uh, but th- th- what draws me to this image is it's beautiful. It's a beautiful storm. <laughs> it's an exciting spiritual life we live in. And um, I want to uh, encourage you to see life with its challenges and its vicissitudes uh, as there is a storm, but it is also beautiful. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Um, we're told by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is in context where we're liars if we say we have no sin. We're liars if we say we haven't sinned. We make God a liar. But the truth is we're sinners. But that's not what John says. He doesn't say if we confess that we have sin. He says if we confess our sins. And that's where it comes down to the daily, moment-by-moment experience of life. When you want to engage in fellowship with God, part of that fellowship with God is going to be in the truth about where we have slipped up. And, and that challenge of 1 John 1, 9 calls us to self-examination. And it's so vital to do that. I think we often search our feelings and find nothing there of substance. But if we would search our record and say, where am I between God's commands and my obedience? Uh, there's some objective opportunity to tell the truth. And so that's why I always give you a moment for silent prayer, recognizing that confession is between you and your Heavenly Father as a beloved child. So I'll give you that moment for silent prayer and we'll open in prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace wherewith you've given us your wisdom. When we ask you for wisdom, you continue to give it abundantly. And uh, Father, we know this is the skill to live our lives before you in a way that pleases you. Thank you for the power of your word to transform us. And as we rely on you, as we abide in your son, as we walk by your spirit, you enable us through your word to want what we ought to want. And Father, this is a work of your grace. This is a miraculous transformation in us, in our inner man. And we ask for this continued transformation tonight as we'd be equipped in our hearts to serve you in our hearts and our hands. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, what I want to talk about, uh, we'll begin with the concept of a summary, the summary of Christian spirituality. This was the 55th of the, of the series of discussing this theological topic in the New Testament has to be in the New Testament because it's Christian spirituality. We're talking about the works of the Spirit in the believer that Jesus prophesied in um, the Upper Room Discourse. And I won't have a scripture passage to teach through to summarize it, but you could look it up in John chapters 13 through 17, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, and other related passages that, <laughs> that teach on this uh, unique work of God in the church age believer. So we're going to summarize Christian spirituality and it will come down to two concepts. Fellowship with God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Having fellowship with God and the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It gets challenging as we talk about theology, especially when we look into the concept of God as one God in three persons. This profound, fundamental basis for all of Christian theology, the persons of God as one God and three persons, this doctrine is a very challenging thing that is our conviction based on what the Scriptures say. We believe in a non-contradictory Scriptures, so we believe in the Trinity. Because Jesus is divine, but he is not talking to himself when he prays to the Father. For example, these are the kinds of conclusions that the entire New Testament comes together to reveal explicitly, which was embedded inherently in Old Testament statements, but especially explicitly revealed in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity. And this becomes a challenge when you talk about the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity in the believer, a prophecy that is well attested. For example, in Luke, Jesus tells them before the cross, go and wait. And then after the cross, he says, go and wait for the promise of the Father. He says that in Luke 24, you go wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem. He says it again in Acts chapter 1, again by Luke, go wait for the promise of the Father. And he explicitly states in Acts 1.8, he says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. And so this is a new thing and we, we see the announcement of the presence of the Spirit with the gift of languages in Acts chapter 2. And so what we're saying is that um, this, is, this is the third person of the Trinity explicitly in all that Jesus taught. It's the third person. It's not the second person. When he's talking about sending the Spirit. In fact, he says, I'm leaving in John 14, and I'm sending the Spirit, as it were, to replace me, because you get a new, a new helper, a new paraclete. So when we think of it in Trinitarian terms, we're dwelt by the Spirit. But what about the statements that talk about Jesus Christ in you? What about the Father and the Son making their abode in you? That's a challenging concept that I think it's not necessarily helpful to just gloss over and say, well, if you have one, you have three. If you have the Spirit, then you have the Father and the Son, and that explains it. I think it's more complicated, but it's not much more complicated. 
So we'll talk about that question of the indwelling of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit. And also this interesting concept, I really like the conditionality statements in the New Testament because they, th- they really put the lie to summary theologies that jam everything together and say that which is commanded is inevitable. By me, I am a father of boys. When you command something to be done, it is far from inevitable. See what I mean? Command doesn't mean it's going to happen. It means I'm inevitably responsible to obey the command. And, that's, and that question of inevitability is a big problem I've got with Reformed theology personally. I think that there's this assumption that, th- that, that there will be this inevitable level of performance that is constantly commanded in the New Testament. See, inevitably, I have the Holy Spirit if I have Christ. Inevitably, I'm responsible to walk by the Spirit. Inevitably, I'm commanded to be filled by the Spirit. Inevitably, I have all these awesome responsibilities that amount to an incredible, privileged spiritual life. So the, 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 the responsibility is inevitable, but the performance, as every Christian who's honest with himself knows, is a matter of a daily reckoning of what's my life for, who am I, what am I supposed to be about? And so... I want to talk about the conditionality and the ministry of indwelling, especially in John 14. Because here's the deal. The Holy Spirit's indwelling is not conditional. You cannot pray Psalm 51 with any any real fear if you're a New Testament-focused Christian. You can't say, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. You can say, I have forfeited his filling work in me, and please let that be restored. But you cannot pray for God to not take his Holy Spirit from you if we're told he's come to abide in your hearts forever. I mean, you can pray it, but you can't do it intelligently. You can't do it in light of the New Testament, in my opinion. We have Samson loses the Holy Spirit. We have Saul loses the Holy Spirit. These are special one-off endowment ministries for special cases in the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, the new arrangement is those who have Christ are in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit, by the baptism of the Spirit, and they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever. So I don't believe in conditionality of the indwelling of the Spirit, conditionality of the filling of the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled. We're never commanded to be indwelt by the Spirit. It's a different ministry. See, again, if you're simplifying your theology, then sealing and baptizing and indwelling and filling They're all the same thing, but they're not the same thing. They're different concepts. And those are all wonderful things, and they all bear some attention. So we're going to talk about the concept of conditionality in John 14. And then we might get to the storm tonight, and we'll talk about the concept of Christian spirituality and suffering. Because, see, we've done something by pulling 1 Corinthians 2 out and talking about Christian spirituality from he that is spiritual in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 through chapter 3 verse 3. When we did that stuff in 1 Corinthians 2 about, um, about spirituality, we came up with a concept of maturity versus immaturity. We came up with the idea of the mature are the spiritual who are saturated with the word, who think the thoughts of God because they have the thinking of Christ And the Corinthians are Christians. They're believers, but they're carnal. They're fleshly. And they don't think, they think like mere men. Their their thoughts are after the flesh or or on the things of the earth, as Paul will say, say elsewhere. And so when we address the concept of maturity and spiritual growth in Christian spirituality, you have to talk about suffering. You have to talk about growing pains. 
It's a big deal in the New Testament. And we'll look at some of the passages that talk about it. So this is the, this is the discussion tonight about some challenging things in the doctrine of Christian spirituality. Uh, I wanted to wait till you got here live to, to participate in this um, uh, and, and enjoy uh, something that puts a lot of questions together. I, I remember uh, working through um, John Nelson Darby's discussion of, um, for example, Colossians chapter 1, and he doesn't really d- address what it means that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. But tonight we're going to look at that a little bit. All right, my summary Christian spirituality. Here's my extended theological uh, summarizing definition, if you will. It's going to be complicated. But remember, it's the filling of the Spirit to equip you for service and fellowship with God that you enjoy Him and His things in common with Him. Christian spirituality is the moment by moment that's in the life as you're going through life, not my position, but my experience, moment by moment fellowship we have with God when we are abiding in Christ. Moment by moment fellowship we have with God when we are abiding in Christ. That's John 15. As I said when I first started this in lesson one, 55 lessons ago, I said that the central passage on fellowship in the New Testament is John 15, 1 through 10. Moment by moment fellowship we have with God when abiding in Christ through, in John 15, keeping his commandments. I don't think his commandments is a reference to the Mosaic law although it is legal language. It is, it is legal law language to say commandments. I think when he says his commandments, he, he, he specifies, and let me, let me validate that just very briefly. It's John 15. It's the upper room discourse. It's his launching, equipping message to the disciples that are going to write the New Testament. It is the seed of teaching that will grow into the New Testament. It is Upper room discourse, and then all the epistles. And if you look at the commands of the New Testament, we have plenty of commands. We have the law of Christ, in my opinion, under the New Testament order, under the apostles. So through keeping his commandments, which he specifies even in John 15, and it's all under love one another self-sacrificially. So it's the moment-by-moment fellowship we have with God when we're abiding in Christ. And how do we do that? Through keeping his commandments with the humble attitude that desires to please him. I almost don't have to say the attitude piece because if I don't have the humility, then I'm really not keeping the commandment. I'm not really loving if I'm not really loving. But I want to specify there's an attitude component to obedience. And so I want to be explicit. I believe Christian spirituality is the moment-by-moment fellowship we have with God when we're abiding in Christ through keeping his commandments with the humble attitude that desires to please him. Where in the New Testament does it say we should desire to please God? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, it says it's our, our, our number one ambition. It's our ambition, our aim, our goal. It's what we want most in life is to be pleasing to him. And that's worship. That's an attitude of worship. So um, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Stay connected, stay dependent, focused attentive. So now what? Mechanics. Jesus doesn't specify much of the mechanics, but he does allude to what Paul will make more explicit when he says you'll bear much fruit. 
bearing fruit is not in contradiction in John to what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit. It will be through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we do this work. So mechanically, this is only possible through the empowerment we receive through the personal filling by God the Holy Spirit with the Word He has inspired, the Word of Christ. That's Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16. I'll say it again. Mechanically, this moment-by-moment fellowship of obedience and, and, and humble worship is only possible through the empowerment we receive, through the personal filling by God the Holy Spirit with the Word He's inspired, the Word of Christ. I have said a whole lot in that long, complicated sentence. It's long, and it says more than it looks like it says. I have, in, I have by this said that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, is inspired by the Spirit of God. And that's the position we're taking. So that the Spirit working in you is working what He has worked in the apostles, and as you take it in, He is teaching you and using it. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and the illuminating ministry of the Spirit. So I say that the, this abiding in Christ work is only possible through the empowerment we receive, through the personal filling by God the Holy Spirit, with the word he's inspired, the word of Christ. Now, does God use the Old Testament scriptures as the word that he has inspired to edify us to obedience, to service, to know God? Yes. And because I believe in every word of scripture and what Jesus said about the Mosaic law, I'm absolutely certain that I am not a covenant partner as Israel to keep it. Because I believe what the law says, I do not consider myself under the law, but as Paul says, under grace. And those are dispensational distinctions. I'm a dyed in the wool Bible-believing, inductively Bible-studying dispensationalist. I think there is an age of law and an age of grace, and it doesn't mean that there was no grace in law, and it doesn't mean that there's no law in the age of grace. I'm saying there is a distinction that Paul and the writer of Hebrews especially make between law, God's agenda for Israel under that administration, and grace, what we have now in the Spirit. And here's my summary. The fruit of the Spirit is these things, and against such things there is no law. Against such things there is no law. Now, I'm being controversial, but I don't mean to be. But this is vital to understand that this is a new order. This did not, could not exist before the Holy Spirit came. And so that was an old order. And yet the Apostle Paul says that the instructions given in the old order are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I take the Mosaic law in its entirety as a portrait of God's righteousness. And I also do something else. I believe Torah means instruction and the Mosaic law is the beginning of God's instruction to the Hebrews. And I think everything that God gave us successively after that in the prophets, calling Israel back to the law, continues to be instruction. I believe the Psalms continues to be instruction in a poetic form. And I think Ecclesiastes is instruction. And so I think it's all Torah. And I think the New Testament is further revelation and it's further instruction. And so I take a broad view of what we mean by law, okay, when we're talking about what God has given us as instructive, but I cannot keep the law today because I have no temple. In fact, I'm, there's a new order. We, have, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All right. But that's okay. I, 
the law condemns my sin. It still does. And when I'm walking by the Spirit, I cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. And against such things, there's no law against walk, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. All right, so mechanically, I'm saying that this obedience to Jesus in a way that pleases Him, that abides in Him, is only possible in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the personal filling by the Spirit of God with the Word He's inspired. And I think that's important too. The filling of the Spirit cannot mean that I am now some sort of supernaturally saturated by an omnipotent power that controls me. It cannot be remote control. Because if I'm walking by the Spirit as I'm commanded to, then I cannot be fulfilling the lust of the flesh in Galatians 5.16. Which means that if I start fulfilling the lust of the flesh, having prior been walking by the Spirit, then the Spirit didn't stop me from choosing to grieve him, to walk by the Spirit. There is this volitional thing that happens when I commit personal sin, when you commit personal sin. So it cannot be remote control. That's, that's straight out. By the way, neither is the influence of wine remote control, but it does have its saturating effect. Don't be drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit with the following results. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, or I would say saturate you as an illustration. That's the idea is the word of Christ is what the Holy Spirit fills you with. And, and so this is really important in terms of my summary. If you're going to be filled by the Spirit, then it will be the Holy Spirit personally using the word of God in you. It will not be the Holy Spirit separate from the Word, and it will not be the Word separate from the Spirit. It will be the supernatural empowerment of the third person of the Trinity characterizing you with the thoughts that he's inspired in the apostles and prophets. So this filling ministry renders us saturated with the Bible's teaching through faith in it and a responsive willingness to obey him. And I think there's a difference between believing something and choosing to say, yes, I'll do it. And this is a big problem in Reformed theology. They want to redefine, in my opinion, there's a redefinition of faith as faithfulness. Faith in the sense of me trusting someone else is absolutely not me doing it. It's someone else doing it. But believing that God is God and what his word says is my best, and so in trusting him, I step out and obey, that would be the obedience that faith produces. And I want to draw a distinction because I think the scriptures constantly do, especially James 2. James 2 draws a great distinction between my faith and my works. Because one demonstrates the other. It cannot be that faith is a work. But what I'm saying is, when we're walking by the Spirit, we're actually not just believing the Word, but we're doing what it says. We're obeying the Word. And here's, the, here's what I want to challenge you with. It seems clear that personal sin in Ephesians 4.30 is a grieving of the Holy Spirit seems clear that in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, to reject the prophetic word of God is to quench his work. So is there any question that when God says, do this, and I say, no, I believe that you're God, and I believe what you're saying, but I'm not going to do it. Is there any question that that person is not walking in fellowship with God or enjoying the fruit or the benefit of the work of the Spirit? Is that, see, there has to be the obedience or we're in sin and we're grieving the spirit there's no walking in fellowship as you're disobeying that's a that's a that's insane it's absolutely insane and you could just call it sin it's just disobedience of god so i think you have to believe what god's word says but you also therefore have to do what it says 
a responsive willingness to obey him. And that's, again, that attitude. You'll never get away from that humble attitude to keep his commands. Not just to keep them in the book. Oh, we got the book and we love it. But we actually do what it says. See, it's really absurd to really halfway swing the bat and get it right to there. Oh, that was some good baseball. No, we didn't even do anything. Well, it was almost a bunt. You've got to swing that bat all the way around to get an entire follow-through of what God said, I love him and therefore obey him as I trust him. As I trust him and what he said, I understand his expectations and then I actually do it. Not to do so is to disobey him and I contend that that is to be guilty of personal sin that requires cleansing and forgiveness at the point of 1 John 1, nine. So again, the filling ministry of the Spirit renders us saturated with the Bible's teaching through faith in it and a responsive willingness to obey Him so that we know God. This is so important to me. The goal of all the Bible stuff is knowing Him. That's why the Scriptures. And I've seen this corrupted. One school of thought that I've seen up close is that the purpose of the Scriptures is to have a body of theology. So that once I've got it, like I'm doing theology here as a huge summary of a lot of the New Testament. A lot of theology will be then just taught as just the stuff because we got it all out of the Bible. So I'm just going to give you theology. And it's, you know what's fun about theology? It's organized. It's got a, a beginning and an end point. And the summary, I can get all, through all 50 points of the theological rationale. And it is the conclusion of what the scriptures are saying, if it is. And so we just start teaching theology because that was the goal after all. I call it cut flowers. I love theology, and I like to bring my wife some cut flowers sometimes. I'm doing that tonight. Tonight's cut flowers. Because I'm doing exegesis for theology with you all the time, so I'm, I'm summarizing. What's cut flowers mean? Well, they're pretty, but there's a time limit. They're not, they've been removed from the nutrients from the soil that produced them. So you get the pretty thing, and then it's dead. And that's just bare theology when it's even biblically sound theology. You have to keep going back to the source. You have to keep it in the, in the soil. And we are going to read some Bible tonight. So, um, and I am, I'm trying to quote scripture as I go through here, but I understand I'm very summary tonight in a theological construct of what Christian spirituality seems to be from the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. So I'm contending the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit rendered us saturated with the Bible's teaching so that we know God, so that we know Him, and thus we have fellowship with Him. To have fellowship with God or share things in common with Him is to enjoy His truth. For example, who He is. Who is God? What's He like? He tells us, and so then we know and we share the knowledge of that and rejoice in that. Your God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. There's nothing that escapes his notice or is not under his control, ultimately, as the, as the orchestrator of all that is. You are so well situated. Think about this. Before there was ever anything, any of the people, problems, circumstances, situations that cause us so much stress in life, there was the creator who now you call Father. He is predating, antedating everything. And so when we think about him as the prior context for everything there is, we are fellowshipping with him in the knowledge of who he is. Think about it. Let's do another one. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, the one who inherits. H-E-I-R, heir of all things. The H is silent. He's the heir of all things. You have Christ. And so in Christ, you're a fellow heir with him. 
Why are we worried about anything when we remember Jesus is the heir of all things? So if I have him, I got everything. Everything. Boy, I hope you get what's coming to you. Right? We, when you get what's coming to you, you, it's hard to think of our lives this way, but we look at Scripture and that's what he says. He's the heir of all things, so we are heirs with him. In a Romans, for example, Romans chapter 8. So we have fellowship with God because we're filled with the Spirit, with His Word. So we enjoy His Word, His things in common with Him. We enjoy who He is. Who We understand who we are. Biggest problem, I think, in the world I live in that's headed, seems like socially, we're headed towards a civil war. We're so separated in our worldviews. We're so, and, and the rhetoric is getting worse. The, the, the children are call, clamoring emotionally for socialism. We have to take care of the poor, so socialism. So we destroy the entire engine that puts people to work so that they have money to give to charity. But we have to have emotionally... So, so we're headed towards this ridiculous, horrible bloodletting because these things boil over. Rhetoric does have consequences. And watch what the philosophy departments in college are saying. Watch the college campus if you want to see what's going to happen in the culture uh, 20 or 50 years later. But, but what's, what's going on in the culture? We do not, as a culture, agree with God about who we are. We, our anthropology is completely, completely to the wind. We've forgotten, as a culture, we're bearing God's image. We're made for His purpose. That's the whole point of reality, is to serve Him. And when you don't know who you are, now what do you do? You start making up a story. And there's a conflict of visions, as Thomas Sowell said it. Conservatives in America think that people are basically sinful and flawed and evil and liberals in america the way we talk about this think that uh, people are basically good and conservatives say we have all of us a, a lazy streak and we shouldn't feed it and liberals say that's not very nice and i believe thomas Sowell was absolutely right i think that today's the world we live in is bearing this out we've got this big social experiment that we're seeing uh, thank you, FDR and LBJ. But that's what, we're, that's what we're experiencing today in the welfare state is that we are flawed. We are sinful. We will take an inch if you give us, we'll take a mile if you give us an inch. And so the experiment is self-defeating in this culture. I'm just using an illustration and where we're at in the discussion here is who we are. Who, who does God say we are? We're sinners, and if we have Christ, then we're sinners saved by grace in a constant conflict between the Holy Spirit who lives in us and the sin nature that will be plaguing us. Although we don't have to obey it, we're freed from its power, but not its presence until the resurrection. I'm told I talk too fast. So now I'm going to slow down. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've just, I've talked just as fast and I've spent twice as much time on the slide. <laughs> I just said it twice. I didn't really slow down. I'm trying to say it in a way that you can receive it. The problem with that is I lose my train of thought. <laughs> my transmission doesn't work in that direction. Okay. So here's the contention, the filling of the Spirit, the mechanical means by which we obey Christ and abide in Him is the work of the Spirit in us. It has to do with Him saturating us with the Scriptures so that by trusting in Him and in what God has said, therefore trusting in God, we want to obey Him and we're responsive in our willingness to obey. And so that we know Him from what He's told us 
And that's a great classic Christian contention from the scriptures is that understanding comes after faith. Augustine said it, and he's probably right. He sometimes was right about some things. So that we know God and thus we have fellowship with him, enjoying his truth. What is fellowship with God? It doesn't mean I'm over here and then I sin and I'm over here. And then I confess my sins and I'm over here. Because the difference between here and here is not much difference. Because this is not what fellowship means. It doesn't mean my position. That's established when I first trust in Christ. My in Christness is settled. But abiding in Christ. Now let's talk about that. Does that mean that I go from I'm over here sinful or I'm over here not sinful? No, that's not what it means. It means I'm over here not abiding in Christ sinful. I say, oh, no. Spankings start to accrue. I say, I don't like this. Lord, what are you doing? You're like, oh, yeah. And I confess my sins. And uh, our Heavenly Father, as a loving Father, stops the spankings, perhaps. Unless he knows it best and continues to train us. But we've confessed our sins. We've been forgiven and cleansed. And now we are free, not just not to sin, although John does say that in 1 John 2, but to have fellowship with God, to enjoy him in common. Koinonia means a concept. It means common ground, means to share in common, the illustration of a meal. If you're not actually having fellowship with God, what's the concept of being in fellowship with God? I don't understand. Well, I'm just having in common with God. What? What's in common with God? The thinking of the scriptures about who he is, who we are, what we're to be doing and how we're to do it. This is what the word of God, and that's why you have to have the filling of the spirit with the word in the same concept of spirituality with fellowship with God. They are, they're inseparable concepts in the age in which we live. Well, what about fellowship in the Old Testament administration? I don't have a lot of didactic literature about what that looked like in terms of the individual life. I do have a lot of instruction in the law about sacrifices and offerings and periods of cleansing and these kinds of things. And I think these are the methods, the mechanics God used before we have what we have now. But there's been a progress of revelation. Well, this is one, one of two slides on my summary. We'll get through the summary tonight. All right. We find that as we're growing spiritually, now this is the next piece of this concept. You've got to talk about progression if you're talking about Christian spirituality. There is a sense in which I'm walking in darkness or I'm walking in the light. There's a sense where I'm not having fellowship with God and lying and when I am having fellowship with him. But now let's talk about the concept of progression because spiritual growth is central to the concept of Christian spirituality, especially in 1 Corinthians 2. What we find is we're growing spiritually is we are more and more in alignment with God. Our worldview, if you will, changes. Our whole person, mind, soul, spirit, is more in alignment with God and his thinking through the sanctifying effect of that communicated content of God's self-revelation. That's the Bible. Through that communicated content of the prophetic word, my whole person is aligning to God's thinking. And it's a complicated process. Think about this. It's not just I assent to this concept and now I've got these propositions. That then has an effect in my conscience. Uh Uh-oh. My conscience is now charged with this concept. And conscience touches my feelings. For one thing that touches feelings. If my conscience is defiled, I've got a bad feeling. 
If I'm really sneaky with myself about it, I try not to think about it. I start doing things that distract me from a corrupted conscience. See, it's a complicated thing to have the whole person aligned to the thinking of God. And this is through the sanctifying effects of the communicated content of God's special self-revelation. Where in the Bible would it say that a perfect, I'm I'm sorry, a, a successful walk with the Holy Spirit would produce a certain types of feelings, affections, or we'll use psychology language, say emotions. Where does it say something to do with the walk by the Spirit would produce a certain category of feelings? Galatians chapter 5 says it. The Bible doesn't say feelings. It says joy. The most absurd thing I've ever seen attempted theologically is to redefine joy as something other than your feelings. Well, joy is not an emotion. What in the world is it? Well, it's a state of mind. Joy is that thing that everyone in the world knows that happens when you become aware of good news. Think about second grade. You're eight years old, five plus two, seven, eight years old. Yeah, second grade. You're eight years old, it's Friday, and something's going to happen in the afternoon, like there's a birthday party. And it just got sprung on you. It's Thursday and your mom tells you tomorrow five of your best friends are coming over for a party and there will be cake and it will have food coloring in it. There will be balloons. Remember, you're, you're eight. There will be balloons and much rejoicing. Will there be ice cream? Oh yeah, there's ice cream. You're eight years old. The new awareness of what is coming to you is a cause for joy. Now, it's a cotton candy illustration. It's a sugar rush that crashes. We all had that experience as a little kid, became aware of some good news, got a little, a little toy, and oh, we're, we rejoice. That is a form of joy, but it's passing. The fruit of the Spirit that is joy is based on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that we're told by the inspiration of the Spirit through the apostles and prophets so that you have a forever awareness of the forever relationship you have with God and that doesn't change. So you can always go back to the joy reservoir and pull out the truth of your so great salvation and despite the horrible transitory suffering you're going through, you remember the forever truth. And you can rejoice, even though you hurt. It is a feeling, for sure. You have to think to get there. You have to think about the truth of God's word. You have to think past your trouble and concentrate on your Savior. And you need to talk to him and all that goes on in in your prayer life. But don't take joy out of the experience and the, the, the spice of life. Joy is in the realm of your affections. The Bible prescribes it. It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's what I'm talking about. The whole person is aligning with the the thinking of God, with, with who he is and what he wants through the sanctifying effects of the communicated content of God's special self revelation. Boy, can I throw some syllables at you! I like multiplying syllables. This is not intended to 
just multiply words though. I'm trying to choose my words carefully because I'm trying to write theology here. So in that alignment, by our willing application of that truth to the progressive challenges by which our Father matures us. So we're growing by the intake of God's word and by the application of it. We're growing by knowing him through what he's told us and then using it as he puts us through our paces. He's a trainer and he makes life progressively more challenging all the way to Caleb Christianity. You know, at the end of your life, the hardest challenges come. Dealing with the loss of children, dealing with the loss of health, dealing with the loss of your own life that is imminent and you're having to ride this roller coaster painful step by painful step if you live long enough to die of natural causes you're walking up this this roller coaster towards the imminent physical death that you're all facing i mean the big challenges come strangely at the end of life as we get weaker life gets harder because in a sense our body's weaker but our walk with god is stronger than it's ever been we've had more time and, and grade the big decisions come to the generals. The hard things go to the people that have been the most expert at something. So you should be a better Christian at 80 than you were at 40. You should be ready for those challenges because they're coming. And I think that's part of what we mean by dying grace. We want God to grace that Christian out with a beautiful ride despite the suffering because I can rejoice in my Savior whom I've trusted all this time. So what I'm saying here is that spiritual growth is going to come about from the communication of that content of God's revelation and our willing application of it to the progressive challenges by which our father matures us. And that message is implanted, watered, grown, and made to bear fruit in our hearts and hands by the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. So I've said it again, it's the filling of the Spirit. That message, that truth that we hang on to and we apply in our circumstance is implanted, watered, grown, and made to bear fruit in our hearts and hands by God, the Holy Spirit. This growth process manifests in greater function of our spiritual gifts, as we've talked about recently, and a general capacity to express greater Christian love, an increase in the ability to love, 1 Thessalonians 3.12. I'm sure there's more to Christian spirituality than we've said, but by doing it this way, trying to give you a theological definition that, um, that tries to encompass all the scriptures that we've studied, what I've tried to say here is that these words that we throw around have more meaning than we tend to give them. The filling of the Spirit. What kind of church do you go to? Spirit-filled. What does that mean? What does that look like, the feeling? Well, it's a feeling. It's something that happens in church. It's great. It's great to be there. I like the music. We throw our hands up. We, we throw our head back. We sing. And then the pastor says something. And then we go home and, and, and it was good to have been there. And we're Spirit-filled. No. That, that language has meaning in the text and it's got power in your life and God has challenges for you that you're going to have to deal with. So we find that as we're growing spiritually, we're more and more in alignment with God. Our whole person is in alignment with Him through the sanctifying effects of His Word and by our willing application of it to the progressive challenges by which God matures us. And that message, that word is implanted, watered, grown, and made to bear fruit in our hearts and hands by the third person of the Trinity. And this growth process manifests in greater, a greater function of our spiritual gifts and a greater capacity to express Christian love. 
I think this is what Christian spirituality is, and it's new. This, what we're talking about here, the apostles are giving, is the mystery. It's the new thing that, uh, <laughs> that God was giving his church when, uh, on its birthday, or the, on the day of Pentecost. Now, what about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity? I'll just give you a little bit. Of, we'll, we'll do the rest of it Sunday morning and some probably um, in the future. But let's just talk very briefly about the Trinity and Christian spirituality. This is the question of if one person's in me, then what about the other two? Because the three are three in one. And the, the answer is, by Jesus' teaching, there is a sense where the Spirit is doing something specifically God the Holy Spirit indwelling. Jesus is gone bodily, the Spirit is in us, and so that's the emphasis. And let's talk about the indwelling of, oh wait, no, we're not going to talk about that right now. I want to talk about the concept of the Trinity. Trinitarianism comes to mind when we talk about the Holy Spirit especially, because he is the silent sort of behind-the-scenes operator. Notice I didn't say it is, I said he is. And I do that because of the Apostle John calls the Holy Spirit him in John 14 at least three times. Greek is specific enough that if he wanted to say it, he could have said ta. And if he wanted to say her, he could have said ta. But he said ha, and that means him. The articles, are, are the pronouns are gendered, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a neuter word. Pneuma is a neuter word, but he uses masculine pronouns to describe him, which is really important. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It is a he. And I don't mean sexually. I mean personally. I've assumed this doctrine throughout this discussion, that you understand that God is one being who exists eternally as one essence in three persons. The language of Trinity has two concepts in it, threeness and oneness try unity. I grew up with a misunderstanding about this. I had three equal beings for a long time. I had three equal essences, one sovereignty of one and the sovereignty of the son and the sovereignty of the spirit as three different sovereignties because of three different equal essences. But that's not the teaching of Christian historic Trinitarianism. It it undoes the unity and it approaches a heresy called tritheism. We don't have three gods. We are not polytheists. I've got a friend down the road that calls me a polytheist because I'm a Trinitarian because he's a Unitarian. He didn't like Jesus as God. And what he does with the Holy Spirit, you don't even want to know. He doesn't do what the Unitarians do, but Gnostics. See, See, what we have is eternally existing one God who is at one time, three persons. One being, one essence of three persons. Essence just means the substance of the thing. And it's the language we've clung to theologically since Tertullian to understand, I mean, since the, since the 200s, we've hung on to this language to help us understand what we're dealing with. So if you have one, you have three. But they have different functions. They do different things. Very clearly, the Father seems to be the architect. The Son seems to be the contractor, the executor, the one who holds all things together in Colossians by the word of his power in Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2. He's, he's God, the Son, just as much as he is the Son of God. 
The Holy Spirit from Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is doing something, but it's mysterious and it is involved in creation and all of God's works. And Jesus' description of the Holy Spirit as you can see his effects, but you can't see him. This is very helpful. He's behind the scenes. He almost never is audibly heard. Jesus is heard all through the Gospels. We hear the Father at least twice, possibly three times in the Gospels, because I forget the count, but I know this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the Father speaks from heaven. Behold, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased in the, in the baptism. At least twice you hear the voice of God the Father. Who meets Saul on the road to, to Damascus? That's red letters, right? That's Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, right? But in Acts, we're told that the Holy Spirit said to set apart Saul and Barnabas. It says, it's explicit in Acts, that the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work. I think that's 12 or 13. He very rarely speaks. But the apostles and and the the Christians in, in Jerusalem speak with foreign languages that they don't know in Acts chapter two because he's present. So he's present doing the work and they're, but they're the ones that you hear, see the manifestation. See, he's behind the scenes and he's come to abide in you. And so I think it's important to draw distinctions between the spirit and the son when you talk about the indwelling ministry because there is a promise and a teaching of the indwelling of the son. I and you and you and me, he says, in, uh, in the discussion of the vine and the branches. And I take that to go to fellowship. The indwelling of Christ is the mystery in Colossians chapter 1. Let me just read it as we close. Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is... What am I preaching? What, it's an advance, he says. The mystery which was hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there's no more flexible word in Greek than the preposition en, in. What is it, in what sense is Christ in you? And when we read this, we assume it's the indwelling of Christ in me. When Darby writes about it, it's the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of Christ. And that could be what Paul has in mind. But I want to say it's a mystery because he calls it that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think that at the very minimum, this is a reference to our fellowship with him, in John 15, when we abide in him and he in us. See, I am forever and always indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but he is not always expressing himself through me. There are times when I'm walking in darkness. I may be the only pastor you've heard say that, but they all do it (laughs) because we're broken. There are times we're not perfect uh, exponents of these truths. When we're abiding in Christ, well, we are. When we're not, we're not. See, I'm always indwelled by the Spirit. But I can tell you there's a difference between walking in darkness and enjoying the hope of glory. There's a difference between walking in darkness and walking in the light. 
And you're not called to just be indwelt by the Spirit and just, you know, know you're going to heaven and, and just have your security. You're called to serve and to walk worthy of your calling. And that is where we find Jesus promising to be in you. We proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So everyone is getting this training, this instruction, because we are on a process of growth and maturity. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, his power which mightily works within me. See, he's describing the Christian spiritual life, and I think he's talking about fellowship and the filling of the Spirit, the walk in abiding in Christ, more than the position that we have in Christ. That I think he's discussing here the Christian spiritual life when he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I got it from John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? He answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. When I say conditional indwelling, I mean it starts with an if and then has a, 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 an apotheosis, a consequence. There's a P then Q statement. If you do this, then you get this. And friends, we didn't just contradict John 3. We didn't contradict the book of Romans. We haven't changed Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to mean something besides believing in Christ as your Savior. He's not talking about those who are in Christ. He's talking about those who are abiding in Christ. How do I know that? How can I say on absolute certainty that John chapter 14, verse 23 is talking about abiding in Christ? Because John 15, 1 is the next verse. Because the, the central topic, the central passage on Christian spirituality, abiding in Christ, John 15, is being set up with this promise that those who love him and keep his commands will be loved in some sense by the Father and they'll make their abode with us. Friends, I think this is what fellowship with God is about. And it is, it seems to be an indwelling. It seems to be a, a special presence. And I, I think this is why you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're always the temple, but you're not always acting like it, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. In other words, what I'm saying is that fellowship with God is a bigger deal than we ever could imagine. And when we forfeit it, well, I'm just breaking fellowship through personal sin. It's not <laughs> smart. Oh, well, you know, I'm still saved. That's not even what we're talking about. There are no do-overs. There are no do-overs. I am truly forfeiting, because, see, this is about obedience. Loving and keeping the word is doing what he said. Now, either you're a Christian or you're not. All right? I'm looking at a room full of believers in Christ, justified by grace through faith. Settled. But in any given moment of your life, you're either loving him by obeying him or you're not. And I think if I take verse 23 to mean Christians, all believers, then I'm somehow missing the point that this thrashes me. I, I, I am a believer. I know I'm saved by grace through faith. So what? So for what? 
to keep his word, to love him, to have this relationship, to have fellowship with him. And this is the beautiful promise that launches abide in me and I in you. Well, I promised to discuss some, con- some challenging concepts. The, the hardest thing was the long two slides of um, summary. This Trinitarian thing, I think, is pretty simple. The indwelling of the Spirit is not the same as the indwelling of Christ. Uh, one is talking about your position, and the other is talking about your experience of walking in fellowship with God. And it does truly, it is truly a bigger deal. Next time, we'll talk about suffering and Christian spirituality as, uh, as you sit in those uncomfortable seats. Heavenly Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the privilege we have to live it in your power and the power your Holy Spirit provides, and that uh, we see the, the three members, the three persons of the Trinity functioning in this Christian spiritual life, that we see true communion with you as a moment-by-moment privilege when we abide in your Son by keeping his commandments on the basis of faith in what you've said and the power your Spirit supplies. Thank you for the richness for the privilege we've had to look at all these many facets of the Christian spirituality. And we pray that we would not be callous about forfeiture of fellowship, that we'd be mindful and our conscience would be more and more sensitized when we choose to forfeit that fellowship. Help us enjoy it as we obey your son as an act of love for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.